Children's Church, and we always thank Lorna for, for doing that ministry as well. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to uh, Romans chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse uh, 17, reading down through uh, verse 29, Romans uh, chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, uh, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For so, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as, excuse me, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Uh, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would uh, oversee the, the preaching and the teaching of your word, uh, that you would just give me the, the words to say, that your gospel would go forth with clarity. Lord, instruct us where we need instruction, correct us where we need correction, encourage us uh, where we need encouragement. Oh, Lord, we pray uh, that your spirit would be present here with us today through the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. pray, pray. Amen. I started my illustration before I finished my prayer because my illustration is on playing and so I couldn't even get the words out right. I don't know if uh, any of you played uh, dress up when you were uh, a child, when you were a kid. Uh, Maybe ladies, uh, you dressed up like your mom. Maybe guys, you dressed up like your dad. Maybe guys, you dressed up like your mom. I don't I don't know. But when you're a kid, you you dress up as things. Maybe you want to be a construction worker. So you dress up like that. You can dress up however you want on the outside as a child, and that does not make you who you dress up to be. If you dress up as a child to be a father, that does not make you a father. If you dress up as a child to to be a construction worker or an airplane pilot, or for me it was a spaceship captain, uh, that doesn't make you what you dress up to be. You are only changing the outside. And the outside doesn't change the reality of who you are. 
We're in a passage of Scripture where we are talking about the difference between changing the outside and looking good on the outside versus having the inward transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that can be so true inside the church that we can become so focused on changing the outward and we can have these outward standards of what a good Christian looks like and never deal with the inward working of the gospel. We can come to church on Sundays all dressed up. We can wear all the bow ties and ties that we desire to our heart's content. And it doesn't mean anything without inward transformation. We need to focus on inward transformation. The heart transformed by God is more important than the formal outward appearance of obedience. The heart transformed by God is more important than the formal outward appearance of obedience. Now, the heart transformed by God will lead to visible obedience. But so often we impose markers upon people of what we think obedience should look like that has nothing to do with the standards of Scripture. And so we have the appearance of obedience. This is what a good Christian looks like. This is what a good Christian dresses like on Sunday or whatever it might be. It means nothing without the inward transformation. God is not impressed by the outward appearance of obedience. God desires the person to walk in his ways through the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit. It has to come from inside. And when it is inside, it will flow outward. But not in a way that is simply, as Jesus describes it, cleaning the outside of the cup, making yourself look good and presentable in the eyes of others. God cares about the inside, not the outside. First, this morning, having outward obedience without actually obeying God does no good. Having outward obedience, that appearance of obedience, that I present myself well and so everyone thinks that I am a good Christian, a good follower of God, having an outward appearance without actually obeying God does you no Good. So Paul addresses here the Jewish person who marks their privilege by having the law. Now, remember where we're going here in terms of the flow of Romans. Uh, Paul is driving towards the gospel. He is driving towards the cross to show us that only the cross saves. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we come to experience salvation. And in chapter one, starting in about verse 18, moving down through, he lists a whole bunch of sins that are particularly common in the Gentile world particularly common in the pagan world of his day. We might even say for our day, particularly common in those unbelievers out there. And now Paul in chapter 2 shifts his focus because he is driving to the beginning of chapter 3 where he will say, all have sinned. Both Jew and Gentile have disobeyed God and we are not saved by how we live our lives. 
We're saved only by trusting in Jesus Christ. And so now he is focusing in on on sins that are particular to religious people. And I would say that these are sins that we might find in the church at large, not in the true believer per se, but in the person who comes to church and considers themselves a religious person or a moral person. You know, much of our heritage in this country, we have had people that are religious and moral, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were Christian. Paul is speaking to the Jew. They had the word of God. Notice verses 17 through 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge of truth. This is all just the if. And then he'll get to the then part and he'll ask some really direct questions. But but notice all of the things that a good Jewish person would would claim as their identity. We have the law. We have the Bible, they could say. God gave us the covenants. God revealed himself to us on Mount Sinai. And even the Old Testament makes a point of saying God didn't reveal himself to the other nations. He revealed himself to Israel. This is something that's special. But this specialness should have led them to repentance. But what they do is they take this as a a point of pride. A point of self-righteousness. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. God showed himself to us. We are the good Jewish people. We know the truth. Look at what it says. But you know his will. Verse 18. You approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. If you have the Bible, you know some things about God. You see his commands. You know what is good and right. You can stand on the truth and say, this is right and this is wrong. You have a foundation for morals and ethics. And all of that is good, but it is insufficient if it doesn't lead you to repentance and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was the problem. They were boasting in themselves. They were boasting in what they had. It is it is like the person who comes to church claiming to be a Christian and they have the word of God. My goodness, they bring their Bibles to church on Sunday and and you can go into their home and they they hang scripture above the doorway and they are so godly. But when the door closes, there is all manner of unrighteousness and disobedience. This is true in our day and even in our history as America. Sometimes we get wrapped up in saying we have the word of God. We had some light. We understood some of these things. You can walk into the Christian bookstore and you can literally see on the shelves thousands of copies of the Bible there. And sometimes we take that as a point of pride. 
We're not in darkness like those other people. Maybe it's other people around the world we think ourselves better than. Maybe it's our neighbor across the street. Thank good I'm not a liberal pagan like they are. I'm a good conservative Christian who who brings my Bible and reads it, and I wear a suit and tie on Sunday. We can have these things that become a point of boasting, even to the extent that they're they're boasting in God. Look at what God did for us. Look at how special we are. And it says in verse 19, if you're sure you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. There's some references here we could cite. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Speaking first about Israel, but ultimately about the servant, the Lord Jesus. But but they could have used this and applied it to themselves in a way. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, uh, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49.6 says this. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And the person reading this could could not have read it and they, they might have not read it as a reference to the Messiah, but they could have easily said, we're we're Jewish. God is going to make us the the light to the nations. And maybe they said, well, he'll bring the Messiah, too. But but they can they kind of got wrapped up in themselves. We take the darkness to or excuse me, we take the light to them who are in darkness. How much better are we? than everyone else, because God has given us the light. Is that your attitude? An attitude of of pride? An attitude of of my position is better? Not, Not where you recognize the grace of God and say, I don't deserve these things, and He has brought me to the light. But the attitude of of where you sort of pat yourself on the back. Thank goodness God brought me to the light. There are many people, even inside the church, perhaps inside our church this very day, who consider themselves to be good Christians, but have never come before the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge their sins. They look good on the outside. You're dressed prim and proper. Your hair is is tied and combed nice and neat. You're not like those people out there that dress awful, that live in open rebellion. You weren't in the bar last night. Thank goodness I'm not like that sinner, you say. But if you've never repented, you fall into that category. You aren't better just because you have the Bible. Just because you're a Sunday school teacher bringing bringing the truth to children, if you do not have Jesus, you are outside of Christ and you are outside of the true and living church, the body of Christ. Notice then, we might point out that, that Paul himself had this experience before he was a believer. He can say in, in Philippians chapter 3, 
though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is, is kind of going and playing the polemical argument here in Philippians 3. And it, it's kind of like, if you want to go and boast, I'll show you what I could have boasted in. I can boast in more than all of you. I was raised a good Jew, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Bethlehem, of the Hebrews of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, meaning I was really zealous at keeping it. I was passionate about it. He says even, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul knows he's a sinner. Paul knows that he doesn't have righteousness in him of himself. He he talks about later on abandoning this and finding the righteousness that only comes from God in Christ Jesus. But his point is, under the mindset that he used to be in, the unbeliever, he was the good moral person in the extreme. And what did he find that he needed? He needed Christ. It's kind of like taking the most moral person you can think of in our day and age, the most outwardly good person who's done many good deeds. Maybe in the past generation, you think of like Mother Teresa and Mother Teresa needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. The law, certainly, Paul will tell us, is good. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But it doesn't do you any good to take pride in having it without following it. It doesn't do you any good to to outwardly look good and clean yourself up if you've never come and repented and received the forgiveness of sins and had the inward transformation. So as Paul goes on, he says, those who have the law but break it, you're actually dishonoring God. You don't get to claim special status because of what you have if you're living against it. Look at verse 21 and 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who have say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples here for Paul? The other shoe drops. What does your life look like? You say you have all of these things. But you really also have sin. All of those things that you have on the outside, the law, the boasting, the activity that you do, the teaching, all of these things mean nothing because you yourself are a hypocrite is what Paul is driving at. You are doing the very things you tell other people not to do. If I stand up here and I rail and preach a sermon on thou shalt not steal, which would be exactly right. But then I go home and cheat on my taxes and steal from the government. What good is that? That's stupid. That's idiotic. Some other examples we might think of in our own day, even with the example of adultery. How many places and people and again, just good religious people, good humanly speaking, conservative churches even that that rail 
against sins that really are sins. Things like same-sex marriage. And they, they champion and use words like protecting the sanctity of marriage. But what good is that if inside the church the divorce rate is just as high? If inside the church there are, are secret sins going on that are destroying marriages? The world around us can spot hypocrites. And sometimes we think that because people are, are spotting those things and seeing those things, uh, the world is, is persecuting us. And sometimes it's true that, that uh, the world will harp on Christians and the stands that we take. But other times they're just calling it like it is. How can you rail against this sin when you have all of these sins? If we're not honest in confessing our own sins and walking in the ways of God and seeking to to clean our own house first, so to speak, to have our hearts made right before God. We really are hypocrites if we are taking prideful positions of I stand on the word of God and thank goodness I'm not like you sinners out there. You don't get credit, so to speak. For looking good on the outside and having wickedness inside. You might think of some other uh, examples. So here we have this example of uh, robbing temples. He, he says you abhor idols, yet you rob temples. We're not exactly sure what Paul was talking about. Uh, for example, there is in Josephus a reference that says, let no one blaspheme those gods which other cities esteem such, nor may anyone steal what belongs to strange temples, nor take away the gifts de- dedicated to any god. It kind of is, is an interpretation of Deuteronomy 7:25, which says when you go in and destroy the various cities, it says you shall not covet the silver and the gold and take from it yourself, lest you be ensnared uh, for what is an abomination Uh, of the Lord your God. So the idea was they make this idol with a carved gold. And when you go in and you're judging the city and and they're fighting in the land of, of the promised land, the idea is just because you know that's an idol and you abhor it, don't take the money. Don't take the gold and say, well, it's just an idol, so we'll melt it down. And and then you're actually you might not be driven by the God, but you're driven by the money. Uh, I actually, in reading one of the commentators, found out in the ancient world during the time of Paul, uh, robbing temples was not that unheard of. Uh, you go into a, a pagan temple and, you, you, you know, you pocket a little change out of, out of whatever they had, their equivalent of the uh, offering plate. In fact, in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, where there's the riot and they drag Paul and others before the town, uh, they say to them, you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers and some say, some translations say sacrilegious, but it's this idea of you dragged them in here and why? They didn't, they didn't rob the temple, nor did they blaspheme our God. So it was a, a common thing. I think the idea here, though, is people that abhor idols. Oh, those pagan idols. They're awful. They're sinful. And then in some way they cheat God. They rob the temple. I don't think it's per se talking about robbing pagan temples, although it might refer to that. I think it's saying you rob God and his temple when you cheat him. And I, there's a reference in Malachi that says this, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 
Will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, you, uh, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Josephus tells a story in his book, The Antiquities. It's written about uh, an event that happened in the time uh, of one of the Roman emperors where a Jewish person was in the city of Rome. He had been kicked out of some Jewish city. Uh, He was well known as kind of an evil guy, a bad character. But he went around and he started teaching the word of God. And he actually gathered three other teachers with him. And he convinced a, a really rich, very dignified woman to donate some purple robes and and um, gold to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, he was doing this in Rome. And so he convinced her. I don't know exactly what he said, but, hey, you know, why don't you send this gift to to the temple in Jerusalem? Because, you know, you you've been following God's word here. And it says that that they took Josephus says that they then took the items and used them for themselves and they spent the money on themselves. I don't know if Paul knows of this example or not, but it's a very good example of robbing the temple. This was supposed to go to God. This was supposed to go to Jerusalem. This is like this is like someone giving you a check saying, would you put this in the offering plate for me on Sunday because I'm not going to be there. And then you open it up and oh, they didn't write a check. They they wrote cash. So I'll just take a little bit and put it in my pocket. And, and then you spend a little more later in the week and you're you're robbing the church in a sense here. They were robbing the temple. The point is this. Paul is digging at the hypocrisies of people. He's not saying that that every Jewish person ever in the history of the world had done each one of these sins in some way. He's he's speaking in a general sense. These are sins that we know that we do. In the same way, in Romans chapter one, you can look at the sins listed there and you can say not every person did each and every one of those sins. But it lays out that we're sinners. Paul is looking at Jewish people who are boasting. He's looking at us who who might think that we can have confidence in the word of God. And he's saying, you have sins, too. And it does no good to clean up the outside, to to look good in the outward self, to impress people by how you live your life. If inwardly you are a seething mess of lusts and sins and rebellion against God and cheating and stealing and anger and whatever it might be. Because you're guilty. You're guilty. Paul's point then is, how can you boast in God's law when you break it? How can you pat yourself on your back and say, look at all I have before God. Look at what God has given me. Knowledge of the truth. And then you flippantly go out and sin in all manner of evil. Romans 3.23, you that boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's be completely honest. There can be these ty- this type of self-righteous legalism in the church today. I'm speaking as the church at large, people that that would say they name the name of Christ. I realize there are genuine believers in each uh, in most churches and and hopefully they don't fall into the categories like this to such extremes. 
But we do, even as believers, need to check our hearts against self-righteousness and this kind of, I am good in the eyes of God because of the way I look in the eyes of other people. But even more, are there, are you, someone who has sat in church maybe for years on end and considered yourself the good moral person And if someone were to ask you why, if you were going to heaven today, you would say yes. And if they said, well, how do you know? You would say, well, you know, I'm in church every Sunday and I try to obey God. And I I generally try to do the right thing. And and I'm I'm by and large a, a good person. You might even say, look, I know I'm not perfect, but as a whole, I'm 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 better off than most. I have more good things that I've done in my life than than bad things. And and God sees that. That's how you think you'll get to heaven. You are lost and you are dead in your sins and you will not go to heaven. If you think that we are special because we have the word of God, because we bring our Bibles, because we dress a certain way, because we look good on the outside. It's wrong. The church can't be a cover for sin. The church is not to be a place where we show up on Sundays and we try to impress one another by how well we have our lives put together. If you have good things going on in your life, amen. You know, praise God. There's nothing wrong with giving praise and testimony to him. But we're not here and and in this and coming to church to, to try to impress people. Church is not a place where we live to to keep up with the Joneses. And quite honestly, sometimes people that have really troubled lives are embarrassed about the idea of coming to church because they think everybody in the church has their life together. And, And I know enough of you have been honest about the grace of God in your life that I think we can honestly say, I hope we know we don't all have our lives together. I hope hope you know that I'm not perfect. I hope you know that we are all saved by the grace of God. We say that this church should be a safe place for people. The church should be a hospital for sinners, as you say, not a museum for saints. We hope that as you're in church, you you begin to, to look more like Christ in your life. But you know what? Christ didn't wear a bow tie. You're not judged by how you dress or how you comb your hair or what color your hair is or how many piercings you have. It's the inward that matters, not the outward. We're not justified by how well we can condemn sin in others. There are so many people, and and I think I'm sure I've fallen into this mistake at various times in my life, where we think that because we can condemn other sins in other people outside of ourselves, that makes us more righteous before God. We kind of get a, a, a joy, a perverse pleasure in, in condemning other sins without dealing with what's going on in here. And that's not right. Galatians chapter 5 says this, Now the works of the flesh, the works of evil, the works of sin, the works of the flesh 
are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be someone who rails against sexual immorality, against fornication, against drunkenness, against murder, against stealing, against idolatry, and then harbors the secret, unrepentant sin of anger, of jealousy, of coveting, looking at what someone else has and saying, I really wish I have that. Of gossip. Of stirring up strife and division. Is sexual immorality, is drunkenness, is murder, is stealing, is it a sin? And should we call sin, sin? Yes. But so is anger. So is jealousy. So is coveting. So is lust in the heart. All of those things that it's easy to hide behind the closed doors of your house or even the closed doors of the church. God is not impressed by how we look on the outside. God wants to see the inward transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it needs to come from God. It needs to come from the work of Christ. So this brings us to our second point this morning. Having inward transformation brings praise from God and not man. The inward transformation comes from God, but it's also something God delights in. Man can be impressed by the outward appearance. You can... You can dress up really nice and bring your Bible to church and and people at work or people in the church go, wow, there's a good Christian. But God knows the sins that you do in secret. He's honored when you have the Holy Spirit and you're actually obeying through the means of the Holy Spirit. So we say here, Paul says here, we have this idea that circumcision has no value if you break the law. Look at what Paul is saying. Circumcision is a deed is of value if you obey the law. If you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Uh, the mark of circumcision uh, was given to Abraham. It was a sign of the covenant. And and it was primarily by Paul's days, one of the the primary markers that you were a good uh, Jewish person. Uh, it was one of the ways you identified that you had the law. OK, I followed it through, uh, particularly if you converted to Judaism. They knew you were serious if you got circumcised uh, as an adult male. And by the way, all of this circumcision is is male circumcision. However, Paul is saying. If you have that sign, that marker of the law, but you don't actually obey the law. What good is it? It, You might as well be marked as an unbeliever, as an uncircumcised person. So he says in Galatians 5, 3, once again, I testify to you that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obliged to obey the entire law. Galatians 6, 13, even the circumcised 
do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. This is talking to the church and they were trying to convince people, hey, you need to be circumcised to follow God. And Paul says, but they're not even obeying God. Sure, they're circumcised, but they're disobeying him in various other ways. And James reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point becomes accountable for all of it. So in other words, you don't get to say, well, hey, I'm circumcised. I'm a keeper of the law. And then you go out and you do all kinds of sin. Paul's saying you might as well just be uncircumcised. The pagan, the lawbreaker, the unbeliever in that respect. So similarly then, a Gentile Christian who walks in God's ways is more circumcised than an actual circumcised person who breaks the law. Let me unpack this and try to explain what Paul is meaning here. Look at verses 26 and 27. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now, first off, Paul is not saying that we are saved by how well we obey the law. He's not saying that the Gentile person can become saved if they just obey everything else in the law. That's not what he's getting at. What he is getting at, and and it comes from two Old Testament background themes. First, the circumcision of the heart idea. So there are commands in the Old Testament that you should be circumcised physically. But this was always to be a mark of what was going on, supposed to be going on inside your heart. And so Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to Israel, circumcise your heart. The imagery is you're stubborn. Your heart is hard. It needs to become soft. It needs to become tender. It needs Uh, regeneration, new life. Circumcise your heart. Cut away the deadness of the heart is the idea. So it takes a physical principle and applies it in spiritual terms. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 promises that there will come a day, it says, when the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So Moses says, guys, you need to do this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Then he lays out all the law of God and he basically comes along and says, You're not going to do these things. In fact, you're going to be destroyed and go into exile in a foreign nation. The ultimate curse for breaking God's law. And then he says in Deuteronomy 30, and it's, it's one of the great prophecies of Scripture. He says, but God will do it. God will circumcise your heart. So along comes, uh, we're skipping through lots of biblical history here, but along comes Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the people of God have broken the law so bad, God says, that's it. You are going into exile in Babylon. Remember Daniel, who's carried off and lives down in Babylon? This is the time frame we're talking about. And what do Ezekiel and Jeremiah say? God will still circumcise our hearts one day. Listen to what Jeremiah says. For this is the covenant I will make with you with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean for all of your uncleanliness, for all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from the from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning a soft, tender, spiritual heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my rules. He says in Jeremiah, the covenant I will make with you is not like the previous covenant. It's promises. It's the new covenant. And in the new covenant, we receive in a fuller measure the gift of the Holy Spirit, swapping out the dead heart circumcising ourselves inwardly, changing who we are and bringing new life into us. And Paul is saying that if you are if the uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their circumcision uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He is saying When a Gentile becomes a believer in Jesus and they get that inward spirit and they actually start to walk in the ways of God. Won't their outward uncircumcision, that thing that you Jews are judging them for, won't they actually be circumcised inwardly? The real circumcision says, when those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law that you have the written code, but you that have the written code uh, and circumcision break the law. So, Romans chapter 8, verse 4 says that the believer, that the just requirements of the law, similar wording here to the language of keep the requirements of the law, the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, we are only saved because of the righteousness of Christ at work in us. But when Christ saves us, he puts the Holy Spirit in us and we begin to walk in the ways of God. We begin to obey God according to the Spirit. We do, in a sense, fulfill the law, not the the outward appearance of the law, But it is written now on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is not saying that suddenly we'll have perfect obedience. But what he is getting at is here are these believers who are Gentiles that you are judging as uncircumcised. And they are actually obeying God more than you are. They are actually walking in God's ways according to the promises of the new covenant. And then he says... These people who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law in this way will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision and break the law. I don't think this is Paul saying, well, now they'll sneer at you. I think this is Paul saying, as he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When the Lord returns, somehow we as Christians are involved in judging the world and setting things right. Again, it's all the work of Christ, and yet, in a way, he's going to use us. I don't understand what all of that will look like. But I think the idea here that Paul is saying is, at the day of judgment, there will be Christian Gentiles who are uncircumcised, who who have the righteousness of Christ and were walking in God's ways, and they will stand up and judge you and condemn you, the good Jewish person who had the law, 
who was outwardly circumcised, but didn't obey the law and never repented in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were nothing at the end of the day, but a lawbreaker. And you boasted because you had circumcision, but you didn't keep the rest of the law. And so you broke the whole thing and you never came before Christ and received the forgiveness of sins. And here were these Gentiles that you looked down on your whole life. And they really were saved. And the day of judgment will put to shame your attitudes, is what Paul is saying. What matters then is the inward heart that comes through the Holy Spirit. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision external and physical. Rather, a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal, one translation would say. Uh, Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. I think the better translation is the one that I read earlier this morning. Verse 29, um, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and it is a matter of the heart by the spirit. and, And they translate there with a capital S, not by the letter. Paul is making a contrast, as he does elsewhere, between the letter of the old covenant that's given to us Uh, on the tablets and the new covenant that is given to us and the law is written in our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. He's not just saying, um, when he says it's a matter of the heart, he's not just saying it's spiritual not uh, and and literal. He's, He's, and not literal circumcision, he's actually saying the circumcision is made by the Holy Spirit and it doesn't come under the old covenant. It doesn't cover uh, come under what he paraphrases as the written code in Romans chapter seven, verse six. He he says we are not slaves under the written code, a reference to the law, but we have new life of the spirit in second Corinthians three, six. He says we are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he he regularly uses this idea of the letter the written things on the tablet to say, okay, that's that's a, a kind of way of speaking of the Old Testament, Old Covenant law, which if you try to be righteous by keeping it, you fail and are judged versus having the Holy Spirit, which comes through believing in Christ, which leads to the obedience that we actually should have had under the law. Moses brought down the Ten Commandments. And what did he find the people of God doing when he brought these things down? fornicating with idols. From the very beginning, God's people needed the Spirit to change their hearts. You and I need the Spirit to change our hearts. Remember what Paul is driving us to. If you rely on the law, if you think that you are saved through obeying God, if you think that that being a good person will get you to heaven, You don't understand what sin is. All are under sin, is what Paul is saying to. The law brings knowledge of sin. It assures us that we are condemned. And it drives us to Christ. And when you have Christ, God takes the law. Those things that he wrote down in the Old Testament. Those things that are good and holy and righteous. The the Ten Commandments. It's still wrong to murder, guys. I I know that's a shock, but but it's still wrong. But he writes it into the heart. So that we're not hypocrites 
when we say, you know, we really shouldn't murder. But we're also, Lord willing, not harboring hate in our hearts, which is the same as murder, according to Jesus. Or lust is being rooted out by the Holy Spirit, which Jesus compares to committing adultery. The letter, the law covenant, it brings condemnation. It stirs up sin within me because my heart is wicked. My heart is uncircumcised. But the Holy Spirit comes in Jesus and gives me a new heart. I become a new creation. In this respect, only as a Christian and only as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ am I truly circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised outwardly or not. It matters if the heart is changed. So Paul says in Philippians 3.3, 3, if it, it, for it is we Christians now, he says, who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. A person isn't a Christian because of outward change and appearance. Outward appearance can be a poor indicator of an inward heart. And there is a type of legalism that can arise in churches where we judge people by what is going on outside. Even a type of pride where we can, we can mark ourselves as a, as a good church-going family. But then cover that up with all kinds, or cover up all kinds of sins. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Someone who has a poor appearance may actually have a heart that loves God. What if somebody today walked in here that was homeless? I mean, what if they really smelled like they hadn't had a shower in like a week? And, and they came, and, and, and would our first assumption be that they're not saved? Like, honestly, we don't know. Let's assume for a minute they aren't saved. Let's say they get saved. And you invite them back to church next week. And next week, because they're still homeless, they, they come to church, but they still stink. Would we look at that person and say, well, maybe they didn't really receive Jesus because I don't see a transformation in their life. They didn't even take a shower this week. Clearly, all good Christians take showers. Would we think that way? Would we judge someone? Second example, what if somebody came in here with all kinds of tattoos and piercings and, and wild color hair. Well, maybe they're not walking with the Lord. And you find out, oh, they are a Christian. Well, clearly they've been skipping their devotions. They must not really love God because good Christians dress up on a Sunday. I was familiar with a scenario one time of a guy who regularly wore shorts to church on Sunday. And someone, a leader inside the church, confronted him and said to him, you know, you really ought to dress a little better on Sunday. You know, you ought to show God that you really care about being here. Does God really care if you wear shorts on Sunday? I mean, is that really the mark of of whether you're spiritual or not? It's so easy, and we do it in so many different things, to, to hold out these standards and say, this is what a good Christian looks like. Let me ask you this. What does a good Christian look like? A good Christian looks like Jesus. 
a good Christian will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And it comes from the inward transformation. It's going to manifest itself in some physical ways. You know, you, you, if you used to have anger, you, you hopefully won't have anger. If you used to swear a lot, hopefully the Lord will teach you how to control your tongue. It may take some time, but, but it will manifest itself in some noticeable ways. But it's not going to manifest itself in, in how you look or how you dress or whether your hair is combed or, or, or whether or not you, you do this or do that. You know, it used to be you couldn't go to movies if you were a good Christian. Are there some movies we should avoid? Yes. Is going to the movies a mark of whether or not you really have the Holy Spirit? No. We need to be careful that we don't impose upon people the kinds of things that Paul was encountering here. That we're good because the outside looks good. As a church, are we genuinely loving Are we genuinely honest and and repenting over our sins? If you have some sort of sin, don't cover it up. Come and, and get help. Talk to a trusted brother or sister in the church. Talk to a dear friend who you can trust in the Lord. Come and talk with me and we'll we'll. We can do counseling or give you whatever help you might need. But don't try to cover the outside and think that that takes care of the inside. Because it doesn't work that way. You're not a Christian by how you look on the outside. You're a Christian because Jesus Christ has transformed your heart and placed his spirit within you. And you've believed in him. And you have the new covenant. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, we just pray that you would be with us here today. That you would speak to us from from your word, that we would be loving and compassionate and caring and that we would not fall into uh, judgmental attitudes and self-righteousness and and pride. Oh, Lord, help us to be humble and honest about our own sins, that we need a savior. Certainly, we want to walk in righteousness. Certainly, we, we don't want to cover up sin. But, Lord, I pray that we would take it serious in our heart and be repentant. And that we would see genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and that we would encourage one another as we see it in the lives of each other. That we would follow you. And that we would follow each other as each other follows Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.